really good to be here with you um, this morning. Um, and uh, yeah, really impressed with the level of welcome that I felt um, while just coming through this morning. Uh, I can sense a real family atmosphere among you. Um, and uh, yeah, a lovely thing to be here. Um, so I know when we preach, uh, when we have visiting preachers at Lighthouse, what we do is we try and um, expect that when they come, they don't just bring a message, but that they deposit something into the church. Because if it's just a message, messages you know come and go. Next week, probably Pastor Ellen will be here and he'll bring another word um, uh, next Sunday. Uh, and that's what we do in church. But if there's a deposit, there's something that God does in our lives on a particular Sunday that can stay with us sometimes forever. Um, and I just trust that uh, God would be here, that he presents himself, and that through something that is said here this morning, that God would make a deposit in your life that would make you different um, or um, more equipped in order to walk this life of being a Christian more and more. Um, I, I, I'm not sure uh, why you determined to ask me uh, to come and be here, but I really count it a privilege to be here. Uh, I know um, Pastor Ellen is away um, at that camp with a few other guys. I really hope they took jackets, okay? <laughs> because I'm sure wherever they were, it was probably a really nippy weekend. Um, but yeah. Can I ask, is it, is it possible to just grab me a glass of water? Um, I may need it during the message. Thanks, Keith. Um, I went on to an antibiotic last night for the first time. And so, yeah, I tried to go through winter without getting sick. I made it till the end of August, etc. Um but at least it hasn't got me lying down. So, when was the last time that you moved a mountain? When was the last time that you moved a mountain? Moving mountains can be quite a job. And Jesus had his own mountains to move. I want to take the time today to look at two events that are thanks Keith, that are not often associated with with Jesus. Um, they are kind of like two very un-Jesus events that took place in his life. He curses a fig tree so that it withers and dies. And then he goes to the temple and he clears the temple. And its traders go running. It's very different behavior to the Jesus we see calling the little children onto his lap. 
or working with the um, Samaritan woman and showing her such dignity and care. It's light years away from the Christmas carol, The Little Lord Jesus, No Crying He Makes. Yet these events are filled with just as much intent and meaning as any of the other events that took place in Jesus' life and ministry. It helps us to think about what Jesus' frame of mind must have been like at this time. This was Monday, the day after Sunday, okay, usually. The day before, on Sunday, the people were, had been lining the streets with palm branches, singing Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And later that same day, Jesus went to the temple, but it was nothing more than a reconnaissance trip because it was late in the day. And so, after Jesus has a look around the temple, he and his disciples leave, and they actually leave Jerusalem, and they go to Bethany and spend the night there. But I'm sure that overnight, those scenes of the temple started playing in Jesus' mind. And what his response was going to be to them the following day. I'm sure that's not all that was playing on his mind. If we think that the first time Jesus felt anguish about his impending trial and crucifixion was in the Garden of Gethsemane, then I think we do ourselves and Jesus' humanity, because remember, he was fully God and at the same time fully human, we do his humanity an injustice. Because these, the impending trauma of the crucifixion and the establishment of his kingdom grew within him as he grew. In Mark chapter 8, it's a chapter where we see Jesus feeding the 4,000 and he heals a blind man. And the, these events took place about a year and a half before the events that we're looking at right now. In about August of AD 31. And it's here that Jesus first informs his disciples of his coming death. He tells them again later on that year, around December, in Mark 9. And in Mark chapter 10 and verse 32, he tells them a third time that he will die and rise again. And that happens in about March A.D. 32. 
just over a year before the events that we're looking at this morning. And now he's in Jerusalem. The clock is ticking. And behind every wakeful thought, Jesus is preparing for his impending opportunity to move a mountain. And so my first point this morning is Jesus feels figs for fruitless effort. I'm going to read from Mark chapter 11, beginning at verse 12, before we get into that. The next day, as they were leaving Bethany, Jesus was hungry. Seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to find out if it had any fruit. When he reached it, he found nothing but leaves, because it was not the season for figs. Then he said to the tree, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard him say it. On reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple area and began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves and would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. And as he taught them, he said, Is it not written... My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. But you have made it a den of robbers. The chief priests and the teachers of the law heard this and began looking for a way to kill him. For they feared him, because the whole crowd was amazed at his teaching. When the evening came, they went out of the city. In the morning, as they went along, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots. Peter remembered and said to Jesus, Rabbi, look, the fig tree you cursed has withered. Have faith in God, Jesus answered. I tell you the truth. If anyone says to this mountain, go. Throw yourself into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will happen, it will be done for him. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask for in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. And when you stand praying, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive him so that your Father in heaven may forgive you your sins. Jesus feels figs for fruitless effort. The walk from Bethany to the temple wasn't a particularly long walk. It was probably just over about three kilometers but Jesus was hungry. 
and he sees a fig tree that is in leaf. So he goes over to it, and once he's close enough to the tree, he notices that it doesn't have any fruit. There's no figs. But it was early spring. Late enough for the tree to be in leaf, but too early for figs. And Jesus curses the fig tree. It's a real wow moment. Because it's so counterculture to anything that we see from Jesus. But I don't think that this is Jesus getting mad at a fig tree. I think there's a transference going on here. Jesus is upset by something else. And he's using a fig tree. You know how we're told that to actually get angry with someone and take it out on them isn't good? So get a punch bag and punch the bag and you can take your anger out in the bag. I think there's something similar going on here with Jesus. And he is using the fig tree rather than the object of what he was really concerned about. Jesus is upset about something else. Otherwise, why wouldn't he have cursed every other fig tree in Israel? And besides, do we really think that the one who was able to feed 5,000 with five loaves and two fish couldn't have suddenly made figs appear on that tree? Surely. He could have got figs instantly. So what's going on here? Jesus' primary, Jesus primary interest is not hunger, but ministry. His mission. And in that moment, I believe that Jesus sees a picture of exactly what he's come to earth to do. I'm sure that Jesus would have been aware of the scripture in, in Micah chapter 7 and verse 1, where the prophet Micah laments the diseased condition of Israel's worship, and he likens it to a barren tree. Micah said, What misery is mine! I am like one who gathers summer fruit at the gleaning of the vineyard. There is no cluster of grapes to eat, None of the early figs that I crave. And just like the fig tree, the temple worship of Israel also looked fruitful. There, were, there was lots happening. It was a vast sacrificial industry. 
In fact, I read somewhere that at the time of Passover, within a two-hour period, the priests would kill 18,000 sheep. It was a busy day. There was a lot of religious hierarchy taking place. But it had become as spiritually empty of fruit as the fig tree. The old covenant was coming to an end. And so, in a prophetic declaration, Jesus says, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. Bearing in mind that in one week from that day, Jesus would rise again and inaugurate the new covenant of his kingdom in his blood. Not only that, but instead of having to go to a temple in Jerusalem to encounter God, the Spirit would be given to all men and women. And we would become his temple. The temple of the Holy Spirit. So that Jesus himself could live within us and fellowship, fellowship with us by his spirit. So here's a question that I'd like you to consider this morning. Is there anything in your life that you need to stop Because there's no fruit in it anymore. Is there anything that you are doing in your life that you did at once because it was bringing some spiritual value into your life, but it stopped doing that? It may not even be something spiritual. My second point, is Jesus forever clears a way for us to worship him. Jesus is forever doing that, and he does it right here. Jesus clears a way for us to worship him. After the fig tree event, Jesus goes on to the temple. And he interrupts business as usual, the business of worship. And it's not the first time he's done this. I don't know if you realize that. Jesus doesn't clear the temple once. He does it twice. We don't read it in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. But in the Gospel of John, in chapter 2, just after the wedding where he turned the water into wine, Jesus goes to Jerusalem then, and it's also at Passover time, and he does the same thing. And he clears the temple saying, get these out of here. How dare you turn 
my father's house into a market. Now, right at the end of his earthly ministry, he does it again. And this time, Jesus doesn't clear the temple with a whip like he did in John chapter 2. But it's, he's got just as much fire and passion in him as he did then. What were these money changers and tables and doves and everything else doing there in the first place? Well, the law gives instruction. And we're not going to read it, but if you're interested and you're taking notes, you can go and read Exodus, Exodus chapter 30, verses 13 to 16. And you'll see that each man who entered into the temple had to pay like a cover charge of a Jewish half, half shekel. And that cover charge was used for repairs and maintenance of the temple. But because they were under Roman rule, Roman currency, Roman coinage, was used as the currency of the day. So money changers provided the convenience to exchange your Roman coins for the Jewish half shekel. For a small fee. Because the Roman coin wasn't accepted in the temple because it had Caesar's face on it. And that was considered idolatry. So the practice was legitimate. But add human nature into the mix and you've got a recipe for all kinds of fraud, extortion and the abuse of power. In April, May of this year, um, Trevor and I, um, with a group of people from the church, uh, went across to Lebanon and we worked with um, Syrian refugees in the Bekaa Valley. And um, we had to change our American dollars that we'd taken with us into Lebanese pound. And when we spoke to the pastor there, he was very clear that there are some places that you go to change your money and other places that you want to stay clear of, otherwise you're going to be robbed blind. Okay? And so we listened to him. But changing money at the temple was like buying a Coke in the International Departure Lounge at Oatambo. Don't know if you've ever done that. It's scary. Okay, there, there's nowhere else to go, so you just have to accept that you're going to have to pay these exorbitant prices 
like daylight robbery occur. That's what it was like in the temple. You couldn't go anywhere else. So you had to put up with this extortion. Jesus wasn't putting up with it. Because for Jesus, this wasn't just an abuse of power. This was an abuse of worship. Jesus, speaking from Isaiah chapter 56 and verse 7, says, My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. Notice that he says, my house. In the John chapter 2 passage, he says, my father's house. There's an ownership there. And then he adds from Jeremiah chapter 7 and verse 11, but you have made it a den of robbers. The area that Jesus cleared was the outer court. That's where this was all going on. And it was supposed to be the place where travelers from anywhere in the world could come and worship and sacrifice and receive forgiveness. That's why it was also called the Gentile court or the court of the Gentiles because anyone could go. Any, you didn't have to be Jewish. You could be a Gentile. You could be a man or a woman. Anyone was allowed into that space. But the Jewish establishment had decided that this space would be better served as a livestock market so that they could have tighter control and thereby guarantee a higher profits for the Jewish elite. So instead of prayers in languages from around the world, the temple was filled with the noise of animals and the haggling of vendors and the smell of manure. And so Jesus flips those tables. Without apology, he flips them. And he clears the temple to challenge the priorities of the Jewish establishment. Jesus was standing up for those who did not have a voice. He was riding. Well, one day he'll come riding on a white horse. But he was riding something that was deep in his heart. And he was ridding the outer court of the things that would inevitably distract and rob people from the priority of worship. This is good news. It is really good news. Because Jesus is clearing a way for true worship. 
He's restoring the temple to its original purpose. But at the same time, Jesus was ending a temple regime at the same time. A temple regime that had got itself stuck in ethnic pride and greed so that a better temple could rise that would never ever exclude the nations again. And Jesus himself is that renewed temple. So it's really interesting because we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. But Jesus is that temple. He is where forgiveness will be found by all the people. And his forgiveness comes without cover charge. Not even a half shekel. So when Jesus overturns the tables and chases out the money changers, he was also by implication offering himself as the alternate sacrifice. I see here in this a memory of my future, of our future found in Revelation chapter 7, verses 9 to 10. We read this. After this, I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and in front of the Lamb, they were wearing right robes and were holding palm branches in their hands and they cried out in a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God. He sits on the throne and to the Lamb, the Lamb Jesus. Because of what Jesus did over 2,000 years ago, one day, there will be a new temple in heaven. And you and I will be in that number. So, we are a temple of the Holy Spirit. Jesus is the temple that we come in order to meet with God and, ha and find forgiveness. And one day in heaven, we will gather in a temple. Amazing. Everyone who has found forgiveness in Jesus will be there. So can I ask you, what's distracting you from your worship of Jesus? Is there anything in your life that you have prioritized over worshiping Jesus? And it's here 
and it's getting in the way. Jesus wants to come and clear that. And he is clearing it so that we can have communion with him. Thirdly, Jesus' faith moves the mountains. Jesus' faith moves mountains. It's now Tuesday. Remember, we were Monday, they left Tuesday. Jesus and his disciples again left the city overnight. Probably went to Bethany again, stayed with Mary and Martha um, and Lazarus. We don't know that for sure, but he often was there. They were his friends. And now on Tuesday morning, they go back to Jerusalem. And because they're on the same path that they walked the day before, they come to the fig tree. And Peter draws attention to the fact that it has completely withered. Completely. For Jesus, this was no longer about figs. And I know that because when he answers Peter, he doesn't even mention figs. He answers about a mountain. What mountain? The mountain of dead, corrupt temple worship that he had come to fulfill. Have faith in God, I tell you. I tell you the truth. If anyone says to this mountain, go throw yourself into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will happen, it will be done for him. Not only is Jesus moving mountains, but he gives his disciples the ministry of moving mountains. Remember I said that in the beginning? When last did you move a mountain? Jesus tells him, if you want to move a mountain, this is the way you do it. So Jesus was moving a mountain, and we get to be like Jesus. We get to move mountains too. On a good day at the beachfront, um, At a good day at the beachfront in Tabeha, we can really show off. That beachfront can look absolutely amazing. But my wife has often said that what we miss is a high vantage point. Because, you know, like if you've been to Cape Town, um, if you at the top of Table Mountain or Lion's Head, <coughs> sorry, 
You can see forever the coast, up and down the coast. It is beautiful on a nice clear day. Absolutely wonderful. And um, in PE, we've got Brooks Hill. Woo! Um, and surely my wife and I are not the first ones to think, wouldn't it be wonderful if we could have Table Mountain and like put it here in Port Elizabeth? A nice mountain that we go climb and watch the coastline. But clearly, Jesus didn't mean that we should curse our own fig trees or move our own mountains, literally. For Jesus, the mountain he's referring to is the Jewish religious system. And he's not in it alone. He invites his disciples to take ownership themselves. That through their faith, Israel's corrupt leadership would fall. Jesus had come to cleanse the temple of its dead religion. And Jesus expects his disciples to share in that responsibility. Through prayer, Jesus gives us the invitation to take down mountains of dead religion. I believe we're given that same invite today. Because around us, we can see examples of dead religion all over the place. And the way Jesus tells us to deal with that is through prayer. If we ask God in faith and through the power of the Holy Spirit to tear down Whatever might be dead religion, he hears us. When we ask God to build in its place a global church that establishes the kingdom of God to all nations, we know that he hears us. And that he will answer because Jesus himself is the author and perfecter of faith that moves mountains. Jesus was obviously referring to the faith within him as he faced Calvary. Don't we all know that we have a cross to bear? We too face the mountains because faith is always a deliberate step. You don't ooze into faith by osmosis. It's an intentional, deliberate step 
to say, Lord God, this is what I believe you've called to me. This is what I believe you want in my life. And then to move deliberately and consistently towards that. And when we do that, when we know why we're alive, when we know why we've been given breath, something changes within us. Dead religion ceases to exist. Because there's a reason. And there's a reason for our marriages. There's a reason for our lives. There's a reason for our churches. There's a reason for our conversations. And in that, we can see Jesus move mountains. We just need to have the faith to know that Jesus is moving through us and in us. We all have mountains in our lives, some big, some small. But they remain obstacles to what Jesus wants to build in us. What mountains are you trusting Jesus to move for you? What do you need to stop? Because there's no more life. It's just going through the motions. What's distracting you from worship? From worshiping God more fully? Because you're never more secure than when you're communing with Jesus. There's no safer place in all the world than to be with Jesus. And let me add something. In the community of his kingdom. We are the living temple. Built of stones next to each other. That form a formidable presence. We are the temple of the Holy Spirit. Jesus is our temple. And one day together, we will all join with him in heaven, worshipping at the temple that is represented there. Until that day comes, let us Move mountains by faith. Worship team, why don't you come up, please? While you come up, I'm going to pray. Lord Jesus, thank you that you don't leave us alone. Thank you, Lord, that you always put something of value and significance for us to follow. And you never intended for us to just exist. 
Lord, sorry if we've put other priorities before you, before our worship of you. The wonderful thing, Lord, is that we, we do get it wrong, but repentance is a prayer away. Forgiveness is a prayer away. And you are always ready to heal and restore. Lord, I pray that you would help us determine to stop anything that is just because it's motions. Lord, you, you're not impressed by activity. You want us to do those things that have life. Your life. And Lord, I pray that as we allow your worship to fill us, by the power of your Holy Spirit. That you would make us mountain movers. We need to be in this age, Lord. Pray this in your name. Amen.